Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. After Arlie Hochschild published her book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, just before the 2016 election, it came to feel prescient. And the conversation I had with her in 2018 has now come to point straight at the heart of 2020, a year in which most of us might say we feel like strangers in our own land and in our own world. Arlia Hochschild created the field of the sociology of emotion, the social impact of emotion. And emotion is now out on the surface of our life together on every side. She explains how our stories and truths, what we try to debate as issues, are felt, not merely factual. And why, as a matter of pragmatism, we have to take emotion seriously and do what feels unnatural. Get curious and caring about the other side. It doesn't mean that you're capitulating. See, that's the misunderstanding, I think especially on the left. Oh, if you listen to them, that means you've been taken over. Not at all. Not at Mm -hmm. all. It just means being emotionally intelligent. That's right. We all need to be makers. If you want to make a social contribution, help build a public conversation about the big issues of the day. You have to really be good at emotion management, (laughs) you know? It's a contribution to the larger whole to be really good at that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. The research for Strangers in Their Own Land took Arlie Hochschild back and forth for years between Berkeley, California, where she's now a professor emerita, and southwest Louisiana, a Tea Party stronghold at that movement's height. Arlie Hochschild was born in Boston, Massachusetts. So you were the child of a foreign service officer. So you sound like you grew up all over the world. Yeah. I uh, lived in Israel. Okay. uh, And uh, from age uh, 12 to 14, Mm -hmm. very pivotal experience. Mm. And then um, New Zealand, Mm -hmm. Wellington, New Zealand. Mm. And then my folks uh, were in Ghana and I spent a summer in Ghana, but by then I was in college. Mm-hmm. And then they were in Tunisia. So I, I was very fortunate, really, mm-hmm. to get to experience all um, that. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Was there um, a religious or spiritual background to your childhood um, in your family or in those places? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, my uh, parents were uh, very religious Unitarians. Oh, okay. And uh, for Unitarians, I th- the message I took away is that it's a very big world and we have to learn to uh, get to know and empathize with and yeah. people in radically different cultures. I think by the time I was uh, 16... I had that message, but I felt something missing. And I got interested in the Quakers, who seemed to be much more 
okay, gang, so what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, the Unitarians were very talky. <laughs> Big talkers, you uh-huh. know, talk, talk, talk. The Quakers looked like they were kind of, um, they, they were doers. Yeah. Well, and I think how you've spoken about how um, living in that diplomatic world, um, you know, so you are you are known within sociology as the founder of the sociology of emotion. And I, right. I just want to kind of summarize, and you tell me if I get this wrong, but, but it feels important. I want to really dive deep into that. So that the backdrop of, in terms of how we analyze uh, and address political and social dynamics, and especially in a time of discord like this, yes, um, where yes. where the sides become more defined and everybody seems incomprehensible to everybody else, and so you know you right. you describe in the book kind of there are ways of thinking about how people are being manipulated or bought. There are ways mm-hmm. of analyzing how people may are being misled. And then there are ways of us describing, you know, how we're just different and that there are distinct cultural values. Mm-hmm. And you've said that for you, and especially as you watch these last few years unfold in, in American and, and now global life, like what is missing for you in all of this, while all of these ways of analyzing are useful, what's missing mm-hmm. is an acknowledgement of the reality of emotion in politics. Right. And empathy. And empathy. Right. You know, the um, idea of emotion being basic and foundational to social and political life is not new. I mean, Max Weber (laughs) talked of it Mm -hmm. and Emil Durkheim. So uh, that's not new. But I found that this important foundational reality of our feelings... um, We didn't have a language, a way of uh, conceptualizing it that was useful. And so um, certainly three decades ago, uh, the idea was that either you were thinking or you were (laughs) were emotional. Right. Right. You're feeling. And so I thought there's something wrong about that because when you're emotional, you you are seeing the world in a particular way and you have thoughts about the way you see it. You know, you yeah. are thinking. And when you're rational, I mean, take the stock exchange or you know, people are making these, quote, rational decisions about uh, buy, sell, buy, yeah. sell stocks on the stock exchange. They're excited, they're elated, they're depressed, they're mm-hmm. emotional. Mm-hmm. So these two are intertwined in ways we have not carefully understood. So, yes, it uh, led me to become extremely interested in emotion, in managing emotions, Mm -hmm. evoking emotions and suppressing emotions in daily life and in work. So I got interested in that. I mean, you're shining a light. So I think that's so important. Yes, that we don't have a language for it, but that also, especially in the late 20th century, I think we don't, we don't know how to take emotion seriously. But, but I think this is such an important statement you make that, um, you know, that runs all the way through work, that also we think the other side is being emotional and we're not. Yes. And the, the, right. the, the really right. important realization is that we are all, that this is a piece of how we are all inhabiting the moment. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And that it's social, right? The f- you, that's one of your big points, that 
that this line between our private emotional lives and social realities is is like acknowledging that is just being reality based. It's kind of like being in the world as it is and not as we fantasize it should be. Right, right. Uh, in my latest book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, I got very interested in something I call the deep story, yeah. which is a way of thinking about emotion. I live and have long taught sociology uh, at Berkeley in California, which is a blue state, as you know, mm -hmm. a blue town. I think I've heard that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in 2011, I realized that already the, the country was falling apart. There were increasing divide between Democrats, Republicans, left, right, and that I didn't understand those on the right and that I was in a bubble. Hmm. So I determined to get out of my bubble and come to know people uh, that were as far right as Berkeley, California was uh, yeah, left. Right. And to try and climb what I called an empathy wall uh, to permit myself a great deal of curiosity about the experiences and viewpoints of people that I knew I would have differences with. And it turned out to be an extraordinary experience. It mm -hmm. took me five years of really getting to know people, asking you know, where they were born, where their school was, what row they sat in in school, what their favorite thing to do was, mm -hmm. where their um, ancestors were buried. And in the course of going fishing with them, uh, in course of really getting to know them, I came up with this idea of a deep story as a way of getting to emotion. So, so that wasn't and, a phrase you'd used before, that the deep story? No. The narrative nope. as felt. Right. That's yes. such an important... So how would you start to tell, you know, so how would you start to tell the deep story of our time as you inhabited it well, in that experience? What I came to uh, feel and realize is that um, both the left and the right have different deep stories. Mm -hmm. So what is a deep story? A deep story is um, what you feel about a highly salient situation that's very important to you. You take facts out of the deep story. You take mm -hmm. moral mm -hmm. precepts out of the deep story. Mm -hmm. It's just what feels true. And I think we all have deep stories, whatever our politics, um, but that we're not fully aware of them, mm -hmm. that they're dreamlike and uh, are told through metaphor. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor for the right-wing deep story that I describe in Strangers, is that you're waiting in line mm -hmm. for the American dream that you feel you very much deserve. It's like uh, waiting in a pilgrimage. And yeah. the light line isn't moving mm -hmm. and has your feet are tired. You feel you're properly deserving of this reward that's ahead. And the idea is you don't begrudge anyone. Right, right. Okay, this in this write deep story. Don't begrudge anyone. You're not a hateful person. But you see then 
the second moment of the right-wing deep story, somebody cutting ahead of you. Hmm. Why are they getting special treatment? And then in another moment, uh, the president of the country, Barack Obama, who should be tending fairly to all waiters in line, Mm -hmm. seems to be waving to the line cutters. And he, in fact, is he a line cutter? The idea Mm -hmm. is. How did his mother, she was a single mother, not a rich woman, afford a Harvard education, a Columbia education, something fishy? Mm -hmm. That that was the, the thought there. And so in a final moment, someone from the coasts, someone highly educated, someone from that so-called elite, turns around, and uh, they're really close to the prize, or they have the prize, but they turn around and look at the others who are waiting in line, and uh, said, oh, you backward, southern, Mm -hmm. ill-educated Racist, redneck, uh, sexist, yeah. uh, homophobic, redneck, right. And mm-hmm. then that is the estranging thing to that insult. Uh, and then they felt like strangers in their own land. Wait a minute. And they would say, one man told me, I live your metaphor. Another mm-hmm. one said, you read my mind. Yeah. Uh, another one said, no, you have it wrong, that the people who are waiting in line are paying for the line cutters. And mm-hmm. so that's why mm-hmm. we're enraged. Another one said, oh, look, we leave that line. We secede, you know, <laughs> getting another leader. Yeah. Uh, so they gave right. it different okay. endings. Yeah. But uh, you can see w- it's my effort to get at feeling. Yeah. And how detached it can become from facts. Yes, and something I, th- I think a lot about, and to me this comes through in you talking about um, the deep story. Cause in the, and as you said, the facts, facts and moral precepts arise out of the deep story. And we no, kind actually, of have this, we take them out of it. We take them out we, of they, the story. We remove them from it. It's right. not about facts, and it's not about moral attitudes right. either. It's a felt truth. Yes, and embodied. In fact, when yeah. I went back and forth between Berkeley and, and the people I came to know and really respect in the other world of the South, um, Southwest Louisiana, I came to to realize that there were different truths, <laughs> living yeah, in different yeah, truths. Yeah. So uh, there are facts. I believe in the reality of facts. Yes, yes. But the deep story, and again, we all have a deep story. Yeah. Um, it repels certain facts that don't fit it, and it invites other facts that do. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with the esteemed sociologist of emotion, Arlie Hochschild. You, in A Strangers in Their Own Land, um, take up what you call a keyhole issue. Um, to kind of go deep into what are the dynamics that collect around a specific subject and mm-hmm. to really understand the dynamics. And you talk about the, the great paradox. And um, 
you know, you point at this dynamic that in the part of the country you were in, there is, well, first of all, an abundant and beautiful natural environment and mm. great pollution and great mm-hmm. res- resistance to regulating polluters. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's such an example of where um, people from the outside of all the dynamics that go into that would say, um, it's just obvious. And, but you know, there's uh, there's a background, I think. Right, right. Um, partly, I think the people I came to know uh, in Louisiana felt that uh, the federal government was a bigger, badder version of local government. And the truth is that in the state of Louisiana, the local government, that is the state government, has not protected people okay. from pollution. You know, there's a there's this passage in, in the book that I, uh, in Strangers in Their Own Land, that I, I just, this, just as an example of this, and maybe this is the person you're talking about, you know, Harold, someone, the, the state yes. always seems yes. to come down on the little guy he knows. Right. This is, take this by you. If your motorboat leaks a little gas into the water, the warden will write you up. But if companies leak thousands of gallons of it and kill all the life here, the state lets them go. That, right. I don't know. That example hits home. It may. I can see that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The big companies uh, are so rich and powerful that they basically have uh, bought <laughs> the legislature. Mm-hmm. In other words, that, that mm-hmm. the companies have outsourced the moral dirty work to the state. So they say, okay, you know, let's let's get a legislature that goes along with our development. Let's talk jobs, jobs, jobs. And so the companies, with the money that the state gives them in this, I think it was $1.6 billion that uh, was in the last five years in Louisiana. Um, offered yeah. to companies, uh-huh. yeah, to come in with that public money, yeah. which came from taxes, um, they then can make donations to the Audemont Society or for new football uniforms for LSU games. You know, right. they're looking good and setting up third grade classes in chemistry. Meanwhile, the state officials, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, is being very weak and giving out permits uh, as one of the people I interviewed said like candy. Mm. So the state looks terrible. The company looks good. It's kind of emotional, actual manipulation, you could say, to get you to feel like the company is your friend and to feel like the state is your enemy. Yeah. And there's, you also describe this interesting dynamic that, um, that again is is nuanced, right? It's not something that would be obvious to anybody. Else. I mean, a lot of this is true, but I mean, for example, you um, you you have this chapter called the Rememberers, mm. and there's yeah. something where you you this there's this amazing sentence about a sociological understanding that memory, just in general, is an indirect expansion of power. And then you say, so ironically, strangely, embarrassingly, the memory of Southern environmental glory fell in part to respectful clerks in federal offices and to Northern (sighs) environmentalists. 
And there's so much complexity there. Yeah. Doesn't it break your heart? Yeah. I mean, it does mine. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Because the people I came to know are know more about the environment. They know, you know, which fish are in what area, where you set the crab pots, where, you know, what ducks you can shoot at what period of, of the year. They love their land, and yet, and yet, they're they're caught. I mean, the people working in the plants. And I talked to a woman who said, you know, I asked you, do you talk to your neighbors about uh, the environment? She said, you know, our neighbors work in the plants, and right. uh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to feel accused. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. as if the people working in the plants would take on the guilt. Right, of what or as the though the guilt does. belongs it's to them. It's not a person, you know, yes, poor yes. person. You yes, know what I yes. mean? It's not their personal guilt. Uh, it's a company policy, and it's uh, the absence of uh, regulation. Here are the rules here. Right, you right. Know, like California has very strict rules. We enjoy it cleaner environment as a result. It's at that level. The guilt is not a personal one. Right. So that I felt was very poignant and sweet of her to be mindful that, you know, an operator might feel accused. Yes. And again, like... poignant this whole thing gets. It does. Well, and what you are shining a light on is the human complexity here. And we may think mm. we may it does make things messy, right? But again, right. I you know, I just feel like you are for this is saying let's let's deal with reality, not wishful thinking. And let's talk about reality and not wishful thinking by having a civil, uh, mm. respectful public conversation. Yeah. You know, where nobody is is bullying conversationally anybody else. You know, yeah. you're, you're coming together to see if there can be common ground on the environment. And there can be, I think. The people I came to know were very interested and very approving of uh, renewables. In fact, there's something called the green tea movement. That is a tea party that's uh, all for renewables. But we're not even finding that common ground because we aren't even respectfully reaching out to look for it. We're in our bubble still. In fact, I I think that problem remains with us. And especially on the left, I think Mm -hmm. uh, there's a a kind of a rigid sort of inward turning, I would say. I find it very sad. I think we have to reach out looking for potential common ground. After a short break, more from my conversation with Arlie Hochschild. You can always listen again on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the 2020 Templeton Prize winner, Dr. Francis Collins, and his work to find a cure for COVID-19 at templetonprize.org. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with sociologist of emotion, Arlie Hochschild, on how our stories as felt, rather than merely factual, shape our life together. The five years she spent between Berkeley, California, and southwest Louisiana while writing her 2016 book, Strangers in Their Own Land, has given her singular insight into current political and social dynamics. We started out speaking about your your work in sociology and your focus on the sociology of emotion and, and taking emotion seriously, which I really, it's hard for me to imagine anybody could argue that emotion doesn't, in fact, seriously matter in politics now. But, you know, and then there's a an obvious extension of that here, which is that we need emotional intelligence, right? I mean, that's what mediation, too. And we need to say this is as important as all of our other forms of intelligence that we that we wield, Yes. That we wield very confidently and boldly. Yes, absolutely. You could say that much of my work has been an effort one way or another to honor and try and get the world to honor the importance of emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. especially as used by service workers, you know, caregivers, child yeah. care workers, elder yeah. care workers. Um who anybody in the service industry is using emotional intelligence, and it matters enormously that we all learn to do it well and don't sneer at it. Um, But, in fact, see that really the crust of society is very thin, you know? And it needs to be kind of, it needs water and sun and nurture so that... uh, it's not as brittle as it has now become in America. Yeah. Our life together needs caregiving. <laughs> mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Also, I feel that we actually possess more intelligence about how to be in relationship across dif- where difference is present and where true mm-hmm. misunderstanding is present. We have a lot of intelligence about that in our families. Yes, we do. And, you know, when I set out on this odyssey, people would, I got two kinds of responses, which were very interesting. One was, oh, I couldn't do that. I'd be so mad. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. those people, they're wrong. And the other one was, oh, you're going where? You're going to center of right wing? Oh, they wouldn't say it, but the kind of facial expression was, well, maybe you're pretty right yourself. (laughs) In other words, you're going... Mm -hmm. to an enclave in which uh, you will be embraced as similar. What was missing from those two responses was the idea that you can be exactly who you are and take your alarm system off, climb an empathy wall, and get to know people on the other side of it. And I don't—and then I got told, oh, you must be especially empathic. No, Hmm. not at all. In fact, you know, I think we're all actually extremely good at it. The only thing is we don't apply that skill, that knowledge, to getting to know the other, whoever we define Mm -hmm. as other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing different I did. Yeah, I noticed that, I know because I looked at and were at a number of, interviews that were done, you know, interviews you gave and have given across years. And I noticed that a great number of the, especially, let's say, the progressive um, 
interviewers they, they like they remark with great astonishment on your kindness right like kind of yeah. like how could you be so kind and it and in a way it kind of models kind of the rut we're in right they that right <laughs> or too kind foolish right, it's right, a fool's right, mission right. what are you doing somebody said so after charlottesville now that we've seen that yeah, how can you talk to these people? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, and and uh, to me, another great paradox of engaging difference, which is you describe, right, is, you know, you said it's not about going in and saying, change my mind. I want to be a Republican, mm-hmm. right? Or I want to join the Tea no. Party or for, or expecting them to, because they engage with you, say, you know, I, I, want, yeah. to, I want to be at Berkeley. Why didn't <laughs> um, So yeah. you didn't change your yeah. politics, but what you said, and, and I think this is true, and I know you've seen this as a sociologist across all kinds of like meaningful encounter with difference. You said it enlarged me as a human being. Right. Right. It did. It did. And uh, to be able to imagine myself into a a different heart. (laughs) One man told me, you know, look, we have similar minds and we have similar hearts, but we have different souls. I thought that was so interesting. And so I said to him, thank you for saying that. Um, Would you be a co-sociologist with me? And figure out how the souls are different. And he looked at me, <laughs> scratched his head. Well, I'm not sure what I, I know what you mean, but sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, in this empathy thing, um, another wonderful encounter uh, was with a gospel singer who was uh, sitting across the table at a meeting of Republican women of Southwest Louisiana. And she said, oh, I love Rush Limbaugh. Well, I first thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, wonderful. I Here's a chance for me to get larger here. So I said to her, could we meet sometime this week for some sweet teas? And, and you can explain what you, why you love Rush Limbaugh. And she said, yes, sure. So... The next day, we were meeting for sweet teas, and she explains, I love Rush Limbaugh because he hates feminazis. I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, So I asked her, well, what is a feminazi? Well, it's a a feminist who, you know, doesn't like children, doesn't, you know, wants men to cook and... um, she goes on to environmental wackos, you know, these people that want to regulate us to death. And after I'm asking her, she stops me and says, um, you've told me that you uh, come from, you know, the other side. So, uh, is it hard for you to listen to me? And I told her, actually, it's not hard at all. I have my alarm system off, and you are... I'm learning about you, and you are doing me such a big favor to share your thoughts. And I can't tell you how grateful I am. And then she says, take your alarm system off. I do that, too. She says, I do it with my kids. I do it with my parishioners. And I thought, you know, okay, well, let's start with that. 
You know? Yeah. A little common ground. We, in fact, do that all the time. Because I was going to say, what do. do you mean when you when we say, you know, do you, is it a moment where you say, okay, am I, but, but actually we have, it's a habit we have in, in the other place. Right? We do it at work, right? Because you can't just yes. blurt out how you really feel about what someone said at every moment. No, uh-huh. no, no. Uh-huh. There are rules about that and there should be. Uh-huh. It's kind of the ground rules of social Interesting. life. Interesting. Yeah. 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 One thing I but found we get yeah. really better at it than than we are. So that's a great invitation. Yes. It doesn't mean that you're capitulating. See, that's the misunderstanding, yeah. I think. Yeah. Especially on the left. Oh, if you listen to them, that means uh, you've been taken over mm-hmm. and uh letting, not at mm-hmm. all. No. Mm-hmm. Not at mm-hmm. all. It just means being emotionally intelligent. You've developed a way of talking. Um yeah. Actually, that is the, a fundamental floor of social interaction. And when you barrel on in there and ignore the competence and uh, identity yeah, of the, the person you're talking to, yeah. it's just counterproductive. It is counterproductive. And you know, I sometimes want to say the way people talk down to... Um, you know, any point, right, that might be made, I, I sometimes want to say, you know, do you want to be right in every moment, you know, or do you want to mm. be part of the larger healing? That's right. That's right. We all need to be makers. If you want to make a social contribution, mm. help build uh, a public conversation about the big issues of the day. And in order to do that, you have to really be good at a Emotion management, <laughs> you know, make it, it's a contribution to the larger whole to be really good at that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with the esteemed sociologist of emotion, Arlie Hochschild. poignant things I felt you know, throughout Strangers in Their Own Land and this time you, you've spent um, in Louisiana uh, is, I mean, it's the Bible Belt, right? That's and right. one of the things you found, which I think is an interesting critique for, you know, the more, the side that considers itself to be enlightened is um, uh, that regulation, that a lot of the things that are coming at people as what needs to be done, in fact, is not about repairing, like not about how do we get whole. I mean, you said, you know, the question of how could repairs be made, a lot of people find, you know, that their Bibles are more useful in that sense than the government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a question. Okay, what has the government done for you? Let's, you know, maybe they have a point. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, it hasn't uh, lived up to its promise. Or maybe it's getting blamed for things it didn't do. Okay, mm. let's figure that out. Let's All have right, a right. respectful public conversation about just that. Is the the government kind of, um, in fact, letting people down? You know, uh, or are they expecting too much of it? What's the record? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, let's let's talk about that and the specifics. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's, you know, there's a paragraph in your book where you just list, you say, even among the most ardent and extreme, or I think maybe this was another interview you gave, you said, even among the most ardent and extreme people you met over five years of research, you found specific issues on which there was potential for coalition, safeguarding children on the internet, reducing prison populations for nonviolent offenders, protecting against commercialization of the human genome, pushing for good jobs, rebuilding our rail system, roads and bridges, and our social infrastructure. Um, that is so interesting to think about. What if we started by saying uh, what we could start talking about tomorrow? Right, right. <laughs> Where we're not low hanging fruit. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And do it in the in the spirit we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You um, in um, strangers in their own land. You near the end. You say. You write a letter to a friend on the liberal left. You, you write a letter to a Louisiana friends on the, or you'd say, you know, if, if you imagine if I re, if I were to write to my mm-hmm. friends in Louisiana on the right, or if I were to write to a liberal friend. I mean, I, there was a sentence in in your letter to your friend on the liberal left. I, I, it's just again, it's humanizing and it's provocative in a human way. Consider the possibility that in their situation, you might end up closer to their perspective. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think that's true. Mm-hmm. That we are products of our own experience. You know? mm-hmm. And what if you grew up in a family um and so many said oh we were poor but we didn't know it. Had a great childhood but we were poor. Yeah. Didn't know it. Yeah. Um okay, what if that had been your experience? And what if your dad's job and how much he earned was the central fact of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. And what if it was a blue-collar job, but you felt put down for doing that blue-collar job, you know? Yeah. I think that there's something actually missing in the entire vocabulary we have for talking about social class. Yeah, Because I didn't go just to another region or to an, people with a different political views, I went to a different social class. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of sneering on the left Mm -hmm. uh, at the blue-collar class. And they're furious at it. Look, we're the daily workers. We're climbing the telephone pole to repair your telephone wire. We're repaving your roads. We're, who are you, you know, to put that down? And there's a lot of humble pie to eat here. And uh, I think it's a problem I didn't know when I set out that I would come back and be as critical of the little cocoon I've long Mm. been in here Mm. as I am. And a kind of, you know, it's not only a a contempt that really bothers me now whenever I hear it or see it, um, and that is buried to some degree. But there's a kind of reluctance to to reach out. It's as if on the left, there's a lot of good political will, but it's gotten curled up in onto itself mm. and become a kind of a self-monitoring program. Oh, you said this wrong, that wrong. Instead of reaching out to build coalitions, because mm-hmm. we're a big country, not everyone's like us, not everyone's like them. 
what we need are sturdy coalitions. And I think labor unions, when the labor movement was much larger and, and uh, there, there was a way that people of different colors and classes got together. And when you had a compulsory draft, too, right, people right. of different colors yeah. and, and, and classes got together in a natural way. It was they an experience. each other. They were, yeah. 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 Public schools have done this. Um, but we're down on those, those crossover connective institutions. I think we need to build another one. I would like to see a civil service, you know, one year required of everyone. Of and everyone. We're, of everyone, yeah. 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 Of everyone, yeah. and you go to a different region and mm-hmm. get to know people. Get, first of all, get to know how to treat people respectfully and listen actively and be a mediator. Everybody should learn those skills and then go across uh, mm-hmm. to uh, see if we can rebuild those that connective tissue. Yeah. I'm I'm sure people have said to you, and I I I get into this conversation myself that um, this critique that you know <laughs> there are all kinds of groups of people, including like people of color, um, who have long felt like strangers in their own land in this country. Oh yeah, and then Definitely. when this right, and, and then when now. this yeah yes, and especially now uh, yet again, and it's when white people. The, the, you know, the critique that white people wake up to this phenomenon when it's about other white people. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you work with that in your mind? I say it's true, and I think it's, uh, it's an important insight. Yes, I, I think it's an excellent point. Okay. That, I mean, for example, the opiate uh, yes. addiction problem has has been, oh, now they're called uh, diseases of despair, and which is kind of a compassionate way. And the crack epidemic was not, yes. yeah. Oh, whereas the crack yeah. epidemic in the inner cities, which hit blacks, uh, wasn't it was criminalized. Um, as benignly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. even worse. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a point that should be broadly received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to draw to a close. This has been just such a big, wonderful conversation. Um, I'm just kind of curious about that. You say somewhere that the English language doesn't give us many words to describe the feeling of reaching out to someone from another world, and then this is in italics, and of having that interest welcomed. And mm-hmm. you said some of its own kind, mutual, is created. I just found that intriguing because I think so much about the power of words. And I wonder if you um, – are there words you're using now? Are you thinking – are there and, – and perhaps that gets at its symbols and how important that is for us in, in constructing our world. Well, I use the word empathy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, something we're all capable of. And uh, we, in a way, carry around little empathy maps who we should and shouldn't mm. feel empathic with. And we need to enlarge those maps, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, shift them. And so maybe there are different kinds of empathy. That's a, and one is, you could call it pragmatic empathy, mm-hmm. you know? 
to see if, okay, uh, let's see if we can heal this divide. You're, you've got a purpose to it. And then some is just there, and it doesn't have that purpose. So, yeah, that's a very special word. And having it returned is you're kind of seeing mm. the humanity of the person uh, you've reached out to, like Madonna Massey, this gospel singer, did to me. Oh, I do that too, she says. Right, when you talked to her about the empathy wall, right? And she said, I have one of those too, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. she said, oh, uh, you're my first Democratic friend. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so we laughed. Uh-huh. We could laugh. Yes. It was a new pool of laughter possible that started with an absolute acknowledgement of our differences. I think that's a good metric. Like, have you created a new pool of, what do you say, pool of laughter possible? That's good. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, yeah, so I I think I would just want to ask you as we close and and perhaps thinking about um, how you continue to live with this, what you learned, what you, not just just what you learned as a scholar, but what you learned as a human being. Um, You know, right now, as you look around in the world, um, uh, and as you move through this experience that has changed you, like what, what makes you despair and what is giving you hope? Mm. Well, um, I'm a positive person, I would mm. say. <laughs> and uh, it tend to see the glass half full. And I think uh, we're at a moment of challenge as a culture. Uh, but we've been in those moments before. Yeah. And I think it's time for us to look at uh, leaders who have uh, been real models of repair. And uh, let's look at Nelson Mandela, for example. Okay. You know, his country was going to go to war yes. with itself. Right. 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 And there, <laughs> it was. Uh, Bitter. If you look around the world, it's hard to find a place pre-Mandela that was more bitterly divided, black to white. Mm-hmm. And he did it differently. He did it like Gandhi. He, he was a unifier. He was uh, a guy who was very good at talking across these hardened lines. And we have a lot to learn from Nelson mm, Mandela. Studying and, that kind of history and that kind of leadership. Yeah. yeah. Um, Martin Luther King. Yeah. These were people who were not off in their corners just uh, separating themselves off, but yeah. were good at saying, look, uh, there are better angels here. Let's access them and uh, create a public conversation about a problem. Let's see where we can go with it. So... Let's uh, think of those positive leaders mm-hmm. and look to them and learn from them because they were real experts in empathy and pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like keeping that and empathy and pragmatism <laughs> go together. I, this, is, this is a weird connection to make, but I think it's in the afterword of your book that you mentioned Cafe Gratitude in Berkeley, which I yes. didn't realize had closed until I read that because yeah. um, it was kind of yeah. an institution there. Um, and... Uh, you, you, 
I think the story you told, so it's a, it was a raw vegan place, and you were you were kind of imagining um, with this new kind of these new sets of eyes you have. You're saying, well, you know, thinking about some of your Christian friends in Louisiana, and you're thinking, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they would think hear about Cafe Gratitude and think, oh, it's a hippie place, but maybe mm-hmm. they would see that it has there's some real echoes there with with their mm-hmm. Christian way a of... touch of church. Yeah, a touch yeah. of church. And then I actually looked because I, I was sad that it had closed and I looked online and I was I found this article in the, I think, the Berkeley student newspaper. And the student, it was kind of an obituary for Cafe Gratitude. And the student was <laughs> saying that they loved the daily question that they used to ask there. And that it would be... And, mm. the, and the examples they gave were, what are you grateful for? Or who can mm. you forgive? And you know, mm. you know, those yeah. are actually questions. For example, that Nelson Mandela asked, yes, very, yes. very surprisingly, given yes. what he'd been through. That's right. That's right. Imagine. So we have a lot to learn. We I have don't a lot know to if learn. we can live up to his model, but it's worth a good try. Hochschild is Professor Emerita in the Sociology Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Her many books include The Managed Heart, The Second Shift, and Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Erin Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akovan, Rodrigo Tuma, and Ben Cott. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.